Kaden Kopiar acknowledges the traditional owners of the land that this podcast was recorded and produced on, the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the East Kulin Nations. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging, and we extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Welcome to The Press Office with Caden Copiar, the podcast that gives you an exclusive and unfiltered look behind the scenes of the Australian media landscape and public relations industry. I'm your host, Marissa Jane, and if you are dreaming of a career in public relations, are an aspiring journalist, or simply just obsessed with all things digital and traditional media, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to the Press Office with Caden Co. PR. Today, I am joined by Cara Monson, the food and wine editor and a digital journalist for The Herald Sun. This episode is perfect for any publicists who work for any food, wine, cafe, restaurant brands, and also for journalists who are just trying to work out the best way to start their career. We cover a lot in this conversation from how Cara landed this job with one of Melbourne's biggest media outlets to some of her annoyances that she faces when dealing with PRs on a day-to-day basis. It is a little bit of a longer episode, so I am just going to pass straight on to the interview. Hello, Cara, and thank you so much for joining me today here on the press office with Kate and Co. PR. We've already had such a lovely chat offline, so I cannot wait to dig even deeper into your career here now that we are recording. So firstly, I'm going to throw it to you. Do you mind introducing yourself, what you do and how you got to where you are today? Thanks so much, Marissa. Uh, my name's Cara Monson and I'm the food and wine editor at the Herald Sun. And I've been a journalist for more than 10 years now. I have a background in news journalism and I guess my career in food and wine sort of came out of the blue. It was quite unexpected, like most things in life, these these opportunities sort of come up randomly, but I love food and I love wine. And when the opportunity presented itself about a year ago now to take on this sort of lead role at the Herald Sun, I grabbed it with both hands because I'm a massive foodie and this is just the dream job. Who wouldn't want to have their job based around food and wine? So initially, was your passion all around journalism first and then you fell into the food and wine space? Yeah. Well, I think very early on, I have these memories as a child. I always was going to be a writer. That was always going to be my job. And it was always my passion because like I have these memories of being a kid. I think I would have been maybe five years old, maybe in primary school. And we had this typewriter Uh, someone gifted us this typewriter and I just remember sitting there and writing on this typewriter. It was an electronic typewriter. It's not one of those vintage old school typewriters, so not that old. But we had this uh, electric typewriter and I used to write stories and 
I just, I just remember sitting there writing and then I'd sort of, you know, once the, I'd written like a page or so, like I'd get out another page and I'd draw pictures on the other side and I'd make a little book and, and then I'd take it into class and do show and tell. And it became this thing where the teachers were like, Oh, when's the next one coming out? Like, Oh, can't wait to hear another, another story. So I think from a very early age, I was always super passionate about sharing stories. And then I think it just sort of evolved into something a little bit more when I was a teenager because I then became very interested in the world around me and current affairs and news and I just wanted to share other people's stories and be able to report. So I think from about 15, I really decided to have a go at journalism and I thought this is the job for me. And I would apply to write at like the local newspaper and I was writing for the school newsletter and I just was super keen, like a very, very keen bean um, as a teenager. And I remember when I think it was like, even at 15, like I was applying to get into the Herald Sun's internship program or work experience program. I ended up doing like a week of work experience at the Herald Sun when I was 16. So that was really cool um, and a bit fortuitous. And then I think from there, my main goal was just to become a hard news journalist at a major paper. And I always had my sights set on working for one of the biggest newspapers uh, in Victoria. So the Herald Sun was up there and I was sort of gunning for that job. And uh, eventually, uh, I think after school, I did study journalism. So I studied a Bachelor of Journalism at La Trobe. And then after my degree, I was trying to get a job in Melbourne. I'd done work experience, I think, practically everywhere. I was uh, volunteering at a community radio station. I was reading the nightly news um, for that radio station. I was uh, interning everywhere and there were no jobs at the time. So I saw that there was a job or a job uh, had come up in regional Queensland, which I took because I was thinking, well, there's no jobs in Melbourne, so I will move for my work. And I ended up getting a job at the Gladstone Observer, which is a regional newspaper in central Queensland, about six hours north of Brisbane. So that was a lot of fun. I had the best time in Gladstone. I feel like it was such a, a random choice to move there but I thought you know what I'm just going to go for it and had the best time had the like got so much good experience and then after Gladstone I ended up moving back to Victoria and ended up getting a job at the Ballarat Courier and I guess to sort of answer your question about you know where did the food journalism come from or where did that passion come from it sort of started in Ballarat because at the time I still had my sights set on my ultimate goal of working in a big newspaper and becoming a hard news journalist. But when I was in Ballarat, a chief of staff sat me down and said, look, we're going to give you this serious news round. I think it was like crime or politics or something like that. But he said, you have to do this other round as well. And that round was food. And I was thinking, oh gosh, I don't want to do the food round. Why would I want to do the food round when I could be doing, you know, be a crime reporter or be a political reporter? So I was a little bit like, oh, okay, I'll do this for you. So I ended up doing it, but I actually really loved it and I fell in love with it. And I think it sort of opened my eyes a little bit because I think I'd always loved food and I'd always been the foodie in my friend group. I'd come from a family that was obsessed with food, but I'd never really realized that I could make a job out of it and it would never, it would become a career path that I could follow. So at that time, I, I was 
really involved in the food and wine scene in Ballarat, and this was at least 10 years ago now, but really was excited to be part of that community. And then I actually ended up getting a job at the Herald Sun shortly after that as a breaking news journalist, which by 25, I'd sort of reach my goal. That's where I wanted to be. And I and I was like, okay, where do I go to from here? Like it, it was sort of a bit of a bizarre moment where I felt like I'd sort of reached my goal. Then I sort of wasn't, wasn't sort of sure where to go from there. Like I obviously loved what I did, but I think it was just this bizarre sort of feeling where I, I feel like I need to have something to strive towards or uh, aim towards or work towards. So I sort of had a bit of a moment where I was doing the, the break news journalism and loving it, but then sort of wanting to do something a little bit different. And then after a couple of years at the Herald Sun, I sidestepped into working with the digital team, which is where I currently am now. And I was working in a role where I suppose had some seniority where I was the morning homepage editor. Uh, I was uh, dealing with the digital side of breaking news. So every time a journalist is out on the field and they're, they're at a crime scene or they're uh, in state parliament, they'll send uh, an email to the breaking news email at the Herald Sun. And then we would take that news, build it into like a web story, uh, put graphics or pictures with it. We'd write the headlines, we'd put links in, and then we uh, build it up into an online sort of story and then put it on the homepage and then manage that homepage. So that was, I was doing that role for a couple of years, but then in the background, I started doing these videos for the Herald Sun and they all were centered around food and wine which was very, I suppose, um, fortuitous again, because I just, I loved uh, food and wine and it sort of naturally, naturally came back to that. And then through doing those videos, the food editor at the time sort of pulled me aside and said, oh, do you want to start reviewing some restaurants every now and then? which I said, yes, I'd love to review some restaurants. I had no prior experience of being a food critic. I'd only ever done food reporting or reporting on news about food, but I'd never done food reviewing. So that was an amazing opportunity. And I took that with with both hands. And I guess fast forward to two years of pandemic and last year, uh, the food editor at the Herald Sun left and the opportunity to step up and, and do this more formally, that was that, that opportunity came up. So I was very, very excited. And now here I am, I've, I've been doing it for about a year in this particular role and still have that digital side uh, that I do three days a week, which is great because I do love that digital side of journalism. But I also get to do wonderful, wonderful things with food and wine. You have certainly had to work really hard for your job and you have had a really interesting trajectory and you can really see how passionate you were about journalism in all of its forms. And now it's become this beautiful moment where you can still do breaking hard hitting news, but you've got the food and lifestyle lens as well. So I think that is so cool that you get to do that. And also to get heaps of free food is a bit of a perk of the job. Yeah, I feel like there is this misconception about being a food writer. I will say yes, there is a lot of opportunities where people do gift you food. Um, There's a lot of deliveries that do get sent to the office that are delicious. But a lot of the time with food writing and, and and, and food, being a food critic, a lot of it is not free at all. We uh, pay to go to the restaurants that we review and we want to keep that integrity in check because I guess it, I guess that's another part of 
journalism and, and the thing that I do love about journalism is in a world where social media is just rampant and there's this sort of conception that people are getting, I suppose if you look at influencers, there's a lot of um, an exchange of sort of goods like, oh, we will gift you this product, but then can you talk about it in this way? And I think the thing that I love about journalism so much is there's that separation and we can keep that um, integrity in check and there's a bit of authenticity to it as well. I think if there's something that we like about a restaurant or we don't like about a restaurant, you can trust that the review that I'm writing is authentic and genuine because most of the time people won't know that I'm there and they won't know that I'm doing a review. And when the review does come out, it's supposed to emulate an authentic experience for the diners. So that's the part of journalism that I do love. But I won't lie, there are a lot of perks and a lot of those perks do involve food and wine. Well, I'm glad you've cleared that up because I feel like that's something that I had a a misconception on as well. But I totally agree with you, especially when you're reviewing a place that you want to have that authentic experience that any other diner would have. And speaking of reviews, how do you decide what restaurants in Melbourne that you do want to write a review on? As part of my job at the Herald Sun, I look after a double page spread every week called Kitchen Confidential. And as part of that, there are reviews that I do weekly. A lot of those reviews are new restaurants. So we try and keep a focus on the new restaurant openings because I guess, you know, there's so many restaurants in Melbourne, there's so many bars, cafes, pubs. And I guess to sort of have that element of newsworthiness, they need to be new or there needs to be something quite different about them. They might have a new head chef or they've completely rebranded and there's a new concept. So I try to keep all the reviews that I do in Kitchen Confidential just new, new and fresh. And in terms of, this is a selfish question because I want to know where to head out on the weekend, where have been your top three restaurants in Melbourne that have opened this year? Oh goodness, that is such a hard question. And I feel like I get asked this question quite often. So I need to have like my little cheat sheet. I need to be able to just rattle off a few great ones. Uh, But I think this year, like of new openings, I mean, I will say within the last uh, six months, six to uh, 12 months, because we were a little bit shortchanged at the end of last year with a few lockdowns. And there were some great restaurants that did open that were excellent. I really liked, uh, Rabata, which is a Japanese yakitori restaurant uh, by the Santelmo Group. Now, I think that's uh, it's in the CBD and it may be on the corner of Exhibition and Flinders Street. I really loved that restaurant. I thought it was a lot of fun. I did go to review it in between lockdowns and also after lockdown and it got even better after lockdown. So I think that was that's a really fun restaurant to go to if you love Japanese. Another awesome restaurant which did open, I'm going to say about 12 months ago now, is Aru, which is the second restaurant by Khan Yuen, who is the executive chef at Sunda, which is an Asian, I was going to say modern, mod Asian, uh, Southeast Asian restaurant. Excellent cooking there, really loved, I suppose, the creativity and just the flavours. And it, it was one of those restaurants where you go to, you sit down, you read the menu, and then you go, I can't wait to come back and eat this and you just had your like second 
list of food that you wanted to eat aside from the ones that you're going to eat that night. So I think that's always a good sign. And then I'm just trying to think if there's any others that were really awesome. I mean, there's so many great restaurants out there that have opened within the last six to 12 months. I feel like Grill Americano is another great one um, by Chris Lucas from, uh, he's the um, part of the Lucas Restaurants group who look after Chin Chin and Baby Pizza and Yakimono. Really loved Grill Americano for uh, its steaks and really good vibe. Really lovely. A little bit, little bit pricey, but I feel like if you're going to save up and go somewhere, that was a lot of fun. So you need to book ahead for that one. Awesome. Thank you for the suggestions. I've got a, a list of restaurants to hit up in the coming weeks. So thank you. No problems. You can always reach out. And how lucky are you? I think in particular, Melbourne is just known for its beautiful restaurants and food. So I feel like that is just awesome that you get to do that every day. And in terms of looking past having a restaurant review, what are you looking for when it comes to say like a bigger food feature for the Herald Sun? So something just beyond an opening of a restaurant. I think with food writing in general and and even just with with journalism we're really looking for a story like I guess we're, we're looking for that the the real story behind uh, someone I mean we want to dig beneath the surface a little bit and peel back the layers and really find an angle that no one else has sort of tackled before. I think with with food features, I I guess in the position that I'm in, I I do get to write them, but they are uh, aren't something that I get to do quite often. And if we do have a time to to write them, I I do want to find an angle that is quite unique. So I guess for us, it's not necessarily um, if we're talking you know PR pitches. Like I think very rarely I would get a story that's been pitched to me direct from a PR because unless it's quite uh, unique or exclusive. I don't think it's going to be something that our readers are going to be interested in because I guess first and foremost, like we at the Herald Sun and with News Corp, we come from, we're we're a news publication. And I think we need to remember that when we're talking about the stories that are getting pitched to us or the types of stories that we're trying to tell. We want to tell something that's, um, I suppose, newsworthy and something that, you know, hasn't been reported before, or if it has been reported before, taking it from a different angle and opening up um, that I suppose, a side of that person that people haven't seen before. So that's how I would structure my features. That gives us heaps of advice as a PR about what we should be pitching to you. And you already touched on the misconception about your free food experiences. Are there any other misconceptions about what you write about? Are there any pitches you're getting that you're just like, why are you pitching this to me? I think there there definitely is things that people just assume that I write about because I'm a food and wine writer. I think first and foremost, uh, going back to that point about news journalism and and what we do at the Herald Sun, I think it's just understanding really what uh, I suppose I'm right about and what I do day to day. Like if you read Kitchen Confidential, you'll see that there is there's two pages. One of those pages is a review. So that's sort of solely dedicated to that. And then on the other side of the page is wine reviews. So there's reviews that I'll be reviewing products, which are mainly wine. Uh, And then news stories that are quite hyper-local and suburban and really tailored to areas in which our subscribers or our readers live. So outside of that, if I get pitched stories about uh, a product that I don't, I don't review products, for instance, like, you know, chocolate, like I don't write a 
product reviews. You might see that in Stella. You might see that in a magazine, but I don't write stories about products uh, 99% of the time. So when I do get uh, pitched those types of stories, I kind of think, well, why am I getting pitched stories like this? Because I, d- I don't write about content like this. So I think it, it it sort of just pays if definitely in the publicity game to really understand exactly who you're pitching to and understanding what they do and actually reading what they write. I think that's just, it seems quite simple, but it's it's one of those things that you sort of wonder, like, I, I don't understand why I'm, why I'm getting a pitched story about Diet Coke when I don't write stories about Diet Coke. So the those kinds of things, just a little bit mind boggling at times. I think that just comes down to as a publicist doing your research. And obviously you're working across a lot of the time, all markets across the country. So, okay, maybe you don't know what that journalist has written for every day of their life. You don't read that newspaper daily, but if you're about to pitch to them, it's so easy to go back and read what they've written over the past month. Is it something that they've written something similar about before? I think it really comes down to just taking the time before you send out those pictures to work out if this is something that is appropriate for the journalist. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think for me personally, the thing that I would like to sort of pride myself on as a journalist is we're in the industry of human relationships and personable relationships. That's essentially what we're doing. There's no, I feel like the the pitches that I really dislike are those ones that seem quite transactional. And I feel like they're just sort of here, do you want to do this story? Um, Let me know if you want to do this story. And then it's sort of very one-sided. And then if I say, no, I don't write about this content. And then the next week I get pitched exactly the same thing. It's just, I don't like those interactions. I feel like very early on in my food writing career, even before I stepped up into this role, I made it my, uh, I suppose, made real effort to connect myself with the major PR firms in Melbourne who did look after food and wine. And I caught up with each of the publicists to have coffee or have lunch and introduce myself and say, this is what I do. This is the type of stories that I write. uh, And this is how I'd like to work together. And I think by doing that, I look back now and I think that was quite a good move three years ago uh, because it's actually sort of worked out in my favor because now I have these great relationships with publicists who are able to help me out if I need a last minute story idea, or even just if I want to write a story about this restaurant, I will know exactly who to go to, to get information. And I guess also with that in mind, in my role, I am I'm completely aware and I'm sure publicists are completely aware that the relationships there, but journalists don't necessarily need to rely on publicists to get stories either. It's just, I suppose, you know, obviously the client would like that barrier in between the journalist and and the client at times, but we don't necessarily, I suppose, rely solely on that relationship. It's, it's a little bit of to and fro and, and obviously we get our stories how we get them, but it's, I always thought that in the line of work that I do and the way that I operate, I want to be able to have authentic relationships with people. And I know that if I invest time in the relationships that I have with people that I'm working with, I feel like it's going to work out better for everyone instead of just being like, here, do a story about this and just a very sort of baseless sort of relationship with people via email. I agree. And I think relationships for publicists, it's in the name, are so, so important. And it also just makes your life so much easier. I think some of my favorite stories that I've ever pitched have been a really kind of two-sided approach with the 
the journalist, you know, I would give the journalist a call being like, this is what the story is. These are the spokespeople I have. How do you think we can make this work? Is this of interest to you? And even before like a big racing carnival or whatever, chatting to a journalist being like, is this ambassador someone that you would be interested talking to down the line? Or if not, should I be looking at someone else? So I think the two-way approach is beneficial for both the journalists because they get the stories that they want. They can talk to the people they want and also the publicist because you can be working back with your client and saying the journalist already would be interested in a story similar to this or this is how we can make it work. And if I feel like people forget that we're in an industry of communication. Like it's a communication industry and I think we forget sometimes that that's ultimately what we're doing. We're communicating with each other. So I think if you can communicate clearly exactly what you're after and I can clearly communicate exactly what I'm after and we can meet in the middle or we can understand each other. I think that's the start of a great relationship. I think some people just don't get that. They don't understand that 90% of this job or 99% of this job is relationships and being able to easily express um, what you're after. So yeah, I 100% agree. It's, It's all about having a proper relationship and it's twofold. Definitely. And one of the things that we were talking about offline was COVID-19, the word that no one wants to hear, but it obviously had such a huge impact on the hospitality industry in particular. How did this impact your job and what did you choose to write about during this time? So I was very fortunate to be in the hybrid role that I am, being that a few days a week I'm in the digital team and I'm running the website and I'm building stories and writing content for subscribers. So I actually was very fortunate to be able to write content about uh COVID-19, as, as as fortunate as anyone could be, I guess, writing about such a, a horrible thing. But I was very, very lucky to be able to still continue working during that time because I know a lot of people weren't in a position like that. So I'm very grateful and very fortunate to have work. But during that time, I was pretty much writing 90% of the time around what was happening with COVID. So I would log in in the mornings, obviously still working from home. I think I listened to the daily press conference every single day for two years, which was quite <laughs> depressing at times. And I would just report mainly on, on coronavirus. And some days we would write, you know, some days I would be interviewing an epidemiologist and talking about the, um, you know, COVID numbers and restrictions and lockdown and when we might be getting out of lockdown and all these types of things. But then other days I did make a point um, of continuing to run Kitchen Confidential during lockdown, most definitely during the second lockdown. So in 2021, and most of those stories were, I suppose, trying to sort of keep a positive spin on things because as much as it sort of was depressing to write about COVID-19 day in and day out and a bit sort of ground I also got to write about, you know, these really inspirational stories about people in hospitality who are continuing to open restaurants or continuing to sort of hustle during that hard time. And that was sort of really, uh, I suppose it was kind of like soul warming in a way to be able to report on the, the light and shade. It was sort of like you might have this negative story that you're writing about coronavirus, but then you're also writing about this really uplifting story that someone in hospitality uh, had been through. So I was very lucky to be able to have that balance. And not only for, I suppose, 
you know, just my own mental health. Um, but it was just, it was just nice to sort of mix things up as well and keep things a bit more interesting. And I think too, like for so many people in lockdown, food and these hospitality vendors that were offering amazing take-home services or picnic boxes, they were the saving grace for so many people. I, I know for one stage when we were allowed to picnic and that was the best thing that we could do, my friends and I would always be searching like for who had the coolest, newest picnic box and we would go buy that on the weekend and sit in a park and, and enjoy that. But these businesses were so creative and they were going through such a hard time, but I'm sure they brought smiles to so many people's faces who needed it. A hundred percent. And I think that that was sort of the mission or that is the underlying mission of hospitality. It's all about providing this hospitable service to the customer or the diner and and sort of creating a moment for them that's special. And I think in lockdown, we really were deprived of that. And hospitality, like they have been, that industry has been put through the ringer and continues to absolutely struggle even now out of on the other side of COVID and lockdowns. I feel like of all industries, um, I suppose, you know, we've aside from the uh, health and um, the doctors and nurses and people who were on the front line, but hospitality, like they have been hurt so much during this time. And I feel like it's a real testament that, you know, they continue the workers of those industries continue to come in day in and day out and do what they do because of the sheer love of of their jobs and to make people happy. Exactly that. And it makes me so upset to think about it. So weird to think about like we've gone through a pandemic in the last two years. Wild. It's it's nuts. Sometimes I look back and I think, wow, how did we do that? What? what? We, we worked from home like almost every day for two years. How did we, what? Yeah. It's a bit uh, surreal when you think about it, like everything that we've been through. So wild. It actually is. And for any budding journalists who have been listening along, I am sure they are more than interested in your career and wanting to emulate something similar to yours. What would be your advice for any Anyone who is considering a career in journalism. If you want to be a journalist, I would like, and you and you have a burning passion to write. I would just say you just need to absolutely go for it and do whatever you can to get as much practical experience in the field as you can. And you know, there's nothing. I think you've got to sort of be a bit realistic in a sense that. You will not walk into your dream job immediately. I think even the most gung-ho of journalists and people who are so determined to, to be writers, you have to sort of step back a little bit and understand that where you're getting your experience doesn't necessarily matter as much as you getting the experience in the first place. I think you need to get just get out there, get writing, uh, get published, move somewhere where others may not be prepared to move. So if you, if that is regional Queensland for you, or if that's maybe overseas or, or somewhere far away, go for it. Uh, make mistakes. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. I think a lot of people like particularly myself, like I'm quite hard on myself uh, for not for when I do make mistakes. But I think I look back at those moments and I think if you're not making mistakes and you're not messing up from time to time, you're not learning. So I think that that, that's something that you need to take on board. I would not be afraid to put yourself out there if you're shy or reserved or you might not back yourself. I think you just need to stop listening to the voices inside your own head and maybe 
about that external noise as well. There'll be so many people out there telling you, oh, you're not good enough or, oh, you're never going to be, you never get to where you want to be. I know a lot of people told me that along my, in my career. And um, I, you know, at the time you, sometimes you believe it, sometimes you don't, but I think you just need to stop listening to all that external noise and just do what you want to do. And if you're really passionate about something, just absolutely go for it and uh, don't stop until you get where you want to be. And also remember why you do it as well. I think, you know, if you're a writer and you love to tell people stories, like I absolutely love telling people stories and I love learning so much about others. There's so many interesting people in the world and I think it's such a blessing and I have such a privileged job to be able to go out there and interview people and chat to these fascinating people fascinating people who just live wonderful lives and I think that keeps me going and I love all of that so I think you've just got to yeah do what you love work hard and things will work out for you because it always does things always work out that is great advice and I think that is very applicable for almost any career so as long as you're passionate about something and like you said things always do work out patience is key I'm a very impatient person so It's very rich coming out of my mouth. (laughs) Oh, don't worry. I'm the most impatient person you'll ever meet. So uh, it's such a test to be able just to sit back and just wait because your time is coming. Like I I think, you know, it sounds a bit woo-woo, but if you honestly believe that you can do something and uh, I think, you know, nothing has sort of set me on the wrong path. If everything that I've done in my career, like as much as at the time it might've felt like, "Mm, going in the right direction I'm not I'm not getting to where I want to be it all works out in the end and you just have to trust sort of your gut and that trust that things will work out and also just be patient during that time as well you know if we all got to where we wanted to be immediately it wouldn't really be um, an exciting journey would it exactly it's all character building I like to say now flipping into some more publicist specific questions and we've already touched on a few of these but one of the things we did talk about was how important it is for a PR journalist relationship what is the best way for publicists to start building relationships with someone such as yourself? Reach out, uh, introduce yourself. I feel like a nice email, a very succinct to the point email about who you are, what you're doing, what you're pitching. That's always good because I will read emails and I will respond to every email that I get. I make a point of responding. I'm getting better now at not responding to the double ups and the people who don't care about or invest in, in, in what I do. I get, I, you know, if it's the third follow up about something that I don't write about and I've told that person last week, I don't write about it. I won't respond because <laughs> I, I, I've got, to, I haven't got time to do that now. So I'm, I'm sort of being a bit more cutthroat, but. Uh, I would say, yes, reach out in the first instance, introduce yourself like you would normally, like to any other person. And yeah, just make sure that we're sort of on the same page about what the type of content that you're pitching and the type of content that I write about. And um, I think, yeah, that's a beautiful way to start. But email in the first instance. In terms of, I guess, pet hates, you have mentioned people pitching things that you don't write about. Are there any other pet hates you have from publicists? Do I want to know the answer? I, like, I guess with all that said, like I do largely have a great relationship with a lot of the publicists that I do work with. I, I feel like, you know, there is a good group of people that I can rely on and I feel like we have great relationships with. My pet hates, I think, yeah, I've, I've touched on the 
the follow-up. I don't understand really the follow-up. Like I understand, like I suppose the concept of it, we get busy, but I mean, you, do you really have to follow up like and go down the list of people on the mailing list and then call them up and check? It's like, if, I, if I'm if i not interested and I don't write about that content, maybe there's, you don't need to have that expectation that I am going to respond to you if we don't write about the same thing. So I think that's probably the main thing that sort of grinds my gears. Maybe not addressing me by name, like in an email pitch. I think that's another one that's a bit of a facepalm moment. Don't get me wrong. Like I know that everyone's busy, but the most decent thing you can do to someone is address them by name and actually get their name right. Like I think I've been called so many different things, even though my email says cara.monson, um, people will still call me Carly or or um, Karen or all these other names and, uh, you know, Cara with a C, that kind of thing. And it's like just little basic details details that actually mean and matter a lot to people. I think it's just sort of having that attention to detail. That's probably another one. I think that's one for everyone. There's been so many times in an email and you're like, my name is right there. (laughs) You know what it is. Exactly. (laughs) And one thing I would love to pick your brain about is obviously there is such a huge debate around traditional and digital media and where is traditional media going? And you kind of have this beautiful insight because you write for both the paper for Herald Sun and also the digital side. Where do you see this evolution of media going? And do you think we're just going to see more digitization of traditional media formats? I think the two will work together. They'll work in tandem because I feel like there's still such a demand and love for traditional media. I feel like people are very, they like, they like a tactile product. They like to be able to pull out the paper on a weekend and leisurely read it and to be able to have something that they can hold and flip through. But at the same time, I think people are also very uh, used to digital media now. Uh, You know, we have you know, these beautiful things in our hands all the time. We've got our phones and we've got tablets and we we use them quite regularly. And I feel like, you know, if something's happening in the world, like even, you know, I've got an Apple Watch on, like every time there's something big that's happening, my Apple Watch will ping with a news alert and uh, I will know about it. Like, I feel like we all are very connected and we just want to know things immediately. And we've got this expectation now that, you know, as soon as something happens, we have to, we'll find out about it immediately. It's not like we're never going to find out about it. Like we, we did maybe 10, 20 years ago. It's like we're waiting even longer than that, obviously. Like I keep forgetting that we're in 2022. Yeah. People, uh, like, I feel like they work both together in tandem and for as long as they possibly can. I understand that, you know, the revenue in the print market is not where it used to be. And there's obviously restructures happening around, you know, where we're getting, um, where newspapers and where traditional media will get their, their money from. But I think with the digital side of things, we're definitely entering this new world of being able to tailor content and write. I suppose I really get a, a, a more of a greater understanding of our readers and people who are subscribing to say the Herald Sun website or subscribing to a news platform and really getting an understanding of the type of news that they want to read, when they want to read it, how they want to read it. And I think that's quite, quite interesting. So I'll be very fascinated to sort of see where that goes to in the future. But I definitely feel like now, even within the last five, 10 years, we've become a lot more sophisticated in how we write content for web and on those digital platforms and how that's 
distributed as well. It is a very interesting conversation. Like I would have said like two years ago that everything would be turning digital, but then you even look at like traditional kind of fashion magazines. There's a number of titles that have made a comeback in the past year or so because people crave that that tactile product, like you said. And, you know, there's nothing nicer than on a Sunday morning waking up and reading the newspaper with a coffee in hand. Yeah, I love that too. And how great is it when we can go on a plane and just read a magazine? Like how, how beautiful is that moment when you can't even have your phone on? and no one can contact you and you're just there and you can just read and just consume and enjoy. It's such a, like, I love that, but I feel like that's such a special thing. And I think as consumers of media, we we won't give that up. I think it's such a special thing. And as much as it might get a lot more difficult as time goes on and the world changes, you know, even in, in print production, you know, in the next five, 10 years, it might be completely different. We might just have weekend papers. We might just have a paper that comes out maybe two times a week or once a week. We just don't know. But I think that if there's that desire for people to have that that feeling of being able to touch something and hold something, I think that, yeah, we're going to see papers uh, and magazines stick around for a little bit longer just yet. Definitely. I kind of miss the days of no digital media. I think when COVID was happening and every five seconds you'd get a COVID alert on your phone, that was overwhelming. Yes, alerts were definitely, well, it was a little bit tricky for me. I feel like I needed to have my app alerts on for, for work purposes, but definitely for other things, I'd turn all notifications off because I just don't want to be constantly reminded of this other digital life that we lead. Sometimes it's nice just to be in the now and just not be connected to anything. Definitely. Like you said, on an aeroplane when you've got no internet, now it's bad because some aeroplanes do have internet and you're like, oh, I was kind of looking forward to two hours with nothing to do. I know, I know. But yeah, I think that's, I'm just going to sort of cherish that moment for as long as I can. Now, before we go, I have five quick fire questions for you. Are you ready? Yep, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, email or phone call? Both, but email in the first instance. Zoom or in-person meeting? I do like both, but Zoom probably in the first instance just for for time, just to fit into a schedule, just for time purposes, Zoom. Favourite way to get information, so via events, press releases or a tailored pitch? Let's go tailored pitch and press release. Instagram, Facebook or TikTok? Ooh, Instagram and TikTok. Lastly, your typical day in media consumption. My typical day in media consumption. Uh, Well, it does definitely start first thing with the phone, uh, opening up the news apps, having a bit of a scroll, seeing what's making news. It's an email check. A lot of the news that I actually catch up on news through my emails because I'm on the breaking news emails at the Herald Sun. So a lot of the stuff that gets put online anyway comes through my emails. So I can catch up through that. Uh, And then throughout the day, it's just a lot of desktop news platforms. So looking at news uh, on the computer while I'm working. I listen to the radio in the morning uh, to get the news bulletin or listen to the news bulletins. And then probably at night, the, the news is on in the background while we're cooking dinner, or it's just usually in the car, on the radio, while I'm on the go, uh, and social media as well, just sort of staying afloat. It's it's pretty hard to sort of, I suppose maybe five, 10 years ago, it was usually reading a newspaper, listening to the radio and watching TV. But now with our lives just so fast paced and 
for on the go all the time. It's sort of just got to get your news where you can. You're exactly right. Like I consume a lot of my news now via social media, which did not happen five years ago. And it's just so telling as well, like where our audiences are, particularly, you know, Herald Sound readers. A lot of them will be using Facebook. A lot of them will be getting the news from Twitter. Not many people just open a news app and read what's happening. So it's just, it's fascinating. And I think that's why I love digital journalism so much. It's just, oh, where are we going to go to next? Will we be getting our news on TikTok? Who knows? Exactly. We probably will, the way that it's all been tracking. So <laughs> watch this space. With a trending sound and a, and a fancy dance move. <laughs> can only imagine. Anyway, Cara, thank you so much for joining me today in the press office. It has been so lovely to chat to you and you have offered some great insights for both publicists and journalists out there. Thank you so much, Marissa. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Press Office with Kate and Co PR. Please subscribe, rate and review via your favourite podcast app and please give us a follow, like and share on Instagram at Kate Co PR.